Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The History of Byzantium. Episode 16, Theodora. Before we introduce the woman who will become empress, I think we should continue the narrative of Justin's reign. The foreign policy developments during these years continued apace, even as Justinian was falling in love. Last time, we saw how Justin's accession was greeted by demands from King Kavad over in Persia for cash, and the deconstruction of the fortress of Dara. When Justin was slow to respond, Kavad unleashed his attack dog, Al-Munthar of the Lakhmid Arabs, to raid Byzantine territory and show the new emperor what saying no to the king of kings felt like. These were the signs of lightning, warning of the thunderstorm to come. You may recall that back in episode 11, I described the small cluster of kingdoms which lived at the eastern edge of the Black Sea, north of Armenia, in amongst the Caucasus Mountains. In case you don't remember, I have put a new detailed map up on this week's post at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. Of course, it's a map from our favourite Wikipedia mapmaker, C. Placidus. The kingdom of Lazica, which lay on the coast of the Black Sea, just north of the fringes of the Byzantine Empire, had been a Persian protectorate for over 50 years by the time the 520s came around. But bordering the Christian kingdoms of Byzantium and Armenia, the people had come to accept Jesus as their saviour of choice. In 522, the Laz king passed away, and his heir, Zath, travelled to Constantinople, requesting baptism. This was no simple religious ceremony. It was an act of great political significance. Zath wanted to recognize Christianity as his kingdom's official religion and switch allegiance from Persia to Byzantium. Justin was only too delighted to invest Zath with the position of king, oversee his baptism, and even find him a Byzantine wife. King Kavad was naturally angry about one of his border states seeking closer ties with his great rival and sent formal letters of protest. The defiantly Christian Justin responded that it was impossible to prevent someone who wished to enter a better way from knowing the one true God. Instead of seeing this as an insult, Kavad decided that if Justin wanted to go around protecting eastern kings, then he might as well go all the way. Kavad wrote back to Justin and asked if he would formally adopt Kavad's own son, Kusro, just as he had Justinian. 
the emperor and his nephew greeted the news with surprise and delight. Here was a chance to ensure peace with the great Sasanian Empire. Justinian and Khusro could be brothers, both destined to inherit their respective thrones and lead a golden age of peace between the two bulwarks of civilization. So what exactly was going on here? I thought Kavad wanted cash from the Byzantines, not dynastic intertwining. Well, Kavad was getting old. The king was now in his 70s and had three sons. His first two had followed their father's support for the proto-communist teachings of Mazdak, the Zoroastrian reformer who had stirred up the hatred of the traditional priesthood. Mazdak's work had rallied many disaffected elements behind Kavad's throne, but there was a problem. Love. Kavad had fallen madly in love with one of his wives, and she had given birth to his third son, Khusro. Young Khusro was ruthless, able, and bold, and Kavad showed him the kind of naked favoritism that was leading toward a constitutional crisis. If Khusro were named heir, it would not only lead his elder brothers to turn on him, but it would also undo much of the reforming work of Kavad's reign. You see, Khusro was an orthodox Zoroastrian and had no interest in Mazdak's teaching. Kavad was in a corner. He had to choose between his favourite son and the policies which he felt were strengthening the Persian state. In the resolute figure of the Emperor Justin, Kavad thought perhaps he could find a solution. If the Emperor would adopt Khusro, then perhaps the traditional Zoroastrian elite would be too fearful of a Byzantine invasion to overthrow his beloved son. Everything seemed to be moving forward smoothly until Justin's quaestor got involved. The quaestor, as you know, was the highest legal officer in Byzantium, and the current incumbent of that office was a man named Proclus. An upright legalist, Proclus pointed out the obvious problem with adoption. Khusro might one day be the legal heir to the Byzantine throne. Although there was much debate about how any succession might come about, the solution seemed obvious. Justin could adopt Khusro under a lesser custom than a formal father-son arrangement. Only a few years earlier, after all, Justin had adopted Euthoric under the German custom, and surely he could now do the same for Khusro. Unfortunately, this idea did not sit well with the Sassanid prince or his father. Enemies they may often have been, but the Persians and the Romans had come to accept over the centuries that each was the keeper of civilization. They should treat one another accordingly, with gifts and ambassadors and an underlying respect. All other peoples, of course, were barbarians, no matter how militarily strong they were. So to suggest that Khusro in any way deserved the same treatment as a Goth was deeply offensive. To make matters worse, in the meantime, the Christian king of Iberia, the neighbouring kingdom to Lazica, tried to follow his neighbour's example and switch political allegiance to the Byzantines. It was poor Hypatius, the nephew of Anastasius, who headed the delegation, which had the delightful task of telling Khusro the new adoption suggestion 
and to debate what to do about a state that bordered Persia itself asking for a Byzantine garrison. Khosrow was of course outraged, and Kavad launched a retaliatory invasion of Iberia in spring 525. The small Byzantine force which had recently arrived quickly retreated in the face of a full Persian army, and Kavad annexed the country, demanding that the people adopt Zoroastrianism as their official religion. The Iberian king Gorgon fled to Constantinople with his family, while the Byzantines took up defensive positions. By 528, though, the Persians had the better of the fighting, and had captured key forts on the approaches to Lazica. Meanwhile, in Persia itself, Kavad supported his son, as Khusro began a brutal suppression of the Mazdakites. The renewed war in the east was not going to be good for the Byzantines. As much as Justin embraced the Christian conversion of the Caucasus peoples, it was pulling the empire into a war which they hadn't wanted. Meanwhile, in the west, Theodoric, the great Ostrogothic king, died on the 30th of September, 526. Christian sources delight in the suggestion that he was struck down for his poor treatment of Pope John, but he was in his 70s, so natural causes are entirely plausible. Theodoric had probably been the most successful of all the Germanic figures who had tried to hold Roman imperial titles during the era when the West fell. He had led his people away from the fallout of Attila's empire. He had crushed the enemies of Zeno in exchange for Italy. He had peacefully settled his people there and prevented the resentments of each side from overwhelming their pact. Often great figures in history are seen as such because of what unravels once they are gone. This is one such case. Theodoric's heir and grandson, Athalaric, was only eight years old, and so his mother, Amalasuntha, became regent. Amalasuntha had been given a Roman education and was encouraged by her father to maintain good relations between Goth and Italian, and of course, Goth and Byzantine. Her first act was to restore the property of Boethius and the other senators who had been caught up in the conspiracy trials as a sign of goodwill. Her fellow Gothic nobles were less sure about her, though. She wanted Athalaric to have a liberal education, as she had had, but her fellow Goths disagreed, insisting that he should spend his time with other Gothic youths learning how to fight. Amalasuntha didn't feel she had the support to resist them, and young Athalaric was led into a life of debauchery, which was said to have ruined his health. While Amalasuntha held unsteady control of Italy, it's worth mentioning that Theodoric's other grandson, Amalaric, now became king of Spain and southern Gaul after a regency dominated by the Ostrogothic noble Theudis. An adult he may have been, but Amalaric was young and untested, and don't think for a second that the sons of Clovis weren't licking their lips, waiting to add another layer of territory to the realm of the Franks. Back in Constantinople, you'll recall that Justinian had spent the early part of the 520s cultivating the blues and allowing their thuggery to go unprosecuted until they crossed a line which Justin could no longer overlook. 
doubtless during this time, Justinian did his fair share of socialising with his new blue friends, and we assume that it was through them that he met Theodora, the woman he would fall swiftly in love with and make his wife. Already the new imperial dynasty were an unlikely royal family. Justin and Justinian were peasant farmers who through the army had found their way into the palace, while the Augusta Euphemia was a freed slave who had been her previous master's concubine. Theodora would top them all. Today, if you attend a professional sports event, like basketball, you will be used to the idea of half-time entertainment. And in the Hippodrome at Constantinople, things were not so different. A day at the chariot races could mean 25 separate contests, and so as you can imagine, the crowd needed entertaining while the next set of competitors were getting ready, or I suppose any fallen charioteers were being carried off. The entertainment was the responsibility of the deems. The blues and greens would employ troops of jugglers, acrobats and animal trainers, and Theodora's father, Acacius, looked after animals for the greens, and provided for his wife and three children from his work at the Hippodrome. He died when Theodora was about eight, and his wife married another animal trainer, hoping to quickly secure the same life for her young family. At some time around 5.05, she marched out onto the Hippodrome floor with her three daughters and presented them before the box where the Green faction leaders sat. Unfortunately, the Greens had already settled on another candidate and said no. Possibly just to spite their hated rivals, the leaders of the Blues took her up on the offer, ensuring her family's continued employment and earning the lifelong loyalty of Theodora. By the time she was 11, Theodora had followed her older sister Comito into the burlesque theatres of the capital to play in low knockabout comedy and farce. As you know from the history of Rome, actors were considered, along with gladiators and slaves, to be the lowest classes in society. Once you get to Christian Byzantium, this social stigma was coupled with moral disapproval of the titillating pantomime dancing which Theodora apparently excelled at. You may recall that the Emperor Anastasius attempted to ban this licentious dancing, and certainly by Justin's day, it was much reduced in frequency. Our main source for Theodora's teenage years and beyond is Procopius's Secret History. This was the book where he poured the scorn of the well-to-do classes on the peasant emperor and his prostitute empress. Yes, by the age of 16, Theodora was working as a courtesan. The word actress was synonymous with prostitute in the ancient world, and Procopius claims that Theodora was a popular mime act and beautiful, and so was much sought-after company. She was described as short, oval-faced, with brown hair and a quick wit. By the time she was 18, she had quite a reputation and had potentially had two children already. We are pretty confident that Theodora led this life. Procopius goes on at such length about her exploits that it seems more than just his prudish imagination. 
Later in life, John of Ephesus, a bishop and friend of Theodora, refers to her in his writings as Theodora from the brothel, with no malice intended. However, what Procopius writes about Theodora's youth is X-rated stuff, and doubtless wildly exaggerated, and I won't recount it here. You can certainly find it in any good book on the period. In her early twenties, Theodora began a relationship with an imperial diplomat named Hecabolus, and accompanied him on his posting as governor of the province of Libya Superior. They soon fell out, however, and she made her way round the coast to Alexandria, which was by now a haven for Monophysites who were fleeing Justin's persecutions. It seems like she underwent a religious conversion at this point, and was most impressed by the patriarch Timothy. The same Timothy who was sheltering Severus, and last episode negotiated with Aksum over the invasion of Yemen. By 522, Theodora was back in Constantinople, and out of the courtesan business. Falling back in with the blues, she caught the eye of Justinian, and soon the 40-year-old heir to the throne and the beautiful 25-year-old Monophysite were living together in the Hormistus Palace, evidently in love. Again, it's possible that she bore him a child which didn't survive. There were two obstacles to any marriage, though. The first was a law which forbid actresses from marrying members of the patrician class. Justinian immediately set about changing the law so that a penitent actress could apply for an imperial grant of marriage, which Justin was happy to grant. The second obstacle was more difficult, though, as the Augusta Euphemia refused to agree to the union. Presumably feeling that she had to fight hard every day to overcome the stigma of being a freed slave, the last thing she wanted to do was be publicly mocked for welcoming a known prostitute into the family. Euphemia passed away, though, in 524, and the following year Justinian and Theodora were married. Now, why, you might ask, have I given such a detailed introduction to an Augusta? We've certainly met influential women in the history of Rome before. Augustus listened to Livia's advice, and Trajan's wife Pompeia Plotina may have had a big hand in Hadrian's elevation, but in terms of influence and authority, Theodora will outstrip them all. No pun intended. Upon his accession to the imperial throne, Justinian insisted that they be crowned together, emperor and empress, a true imperial partnership. Provincial governors would soon be asked to swear allegiance to emperor and empress for the first time, and Justinian would certainly seek her advice on matters of state and treat her as a valued advisor. In fact, countless decrees he issued refer to Theodora as our most pious consort given us by God. Love letters in the form of imperial legislation. The marriage was a successful partnership. Justinian was more introverted than his wife and preferred to stay in the palace, working. Theodora was used to public attention and was happy to make the appearances required of a sovereign. We are quite sure that the couple were loyal to one another, 
in part because if there had been any rumours of infidelity, you can bet Procopius would have told us all about them. And while he is happy to paint the pair as demonic, he doesn't suggest that they weren't happy together. Of course, Procopius was not alone in being horrified at the rise of Theodora, and looked down on the imperial regime with undisguised snobbery. For members of the senatorial class, it must have seemed like a brood of peasants and actresses were taking the reins of their government. As Justin had done, Theodora brought her existing family into the new respectable world of court life, finding husbands for her sisters and her friends. Her elder sister Comito was married to one of Justinian's former bodyguards, Sitas, who will feature in our story again. There is, of course, the issue of Theodora's monophysitism. It tells us quite a lot about Justinian's attitude toward religious issues that he wasn't bothered by his bride's beliefs. And as we shall see down the road, it's possible that Justinian saw this as an opportunity to unite the church by the example of their successful union. Although Justinian used the blue faction to make sure that the new regime had support on the streets, He also knew that he needed to cultivate friends in the Senate. During Justin's reign, they kept promoting the old elite and made sure that imperial largesse was extended to influential men who he wanted to stay on good terms with. This backroom politicking may not have been needed, but it didn't hurt when Justin suddenly fell ill in 527 without having named a successor. The Senate begged the ailing emperor to crown Justinian Caesar so that he could rule while Justin recovered. The emperor assented, but was too ill to take part, and so the patriarch Epiphanius performed the ceremony in the triclinium of the nineteen couches in the palace on April the 4th. Justin survived only until August, when he succumbed to either an old war wound or some other illness. He was about 74 or 75 years old and had ruled the empire for nine years. In all the history books, Justin's reign is seen as a mere preamble to Justinian's. Part of why we think that is that we know a lot more about what happens next. But I think it's fair to say that being emperor was beyond a dream come true for Justin, and he was happy simply to manage the machine he inherited from Anastasius. The most important part of Justin's reign, in hindsight, probably is the time it gave Justinian to familiarise himself with that machinery of state and make his plans to transform it. Justinian, therefore, became sole emperor on August 2nd, 527, with Theodora at his side. He was about 45 years old and was so ready to get going. The next few years saw an explosion of activity on all fronts as Justinian let loose every idea he had for how to remake the Roman Empire into something worthy of its past, its god, and its new emperor. The only way to keep track of this whirlwind is to split the next few episodes between different fronts and foreign and domestic affairs, but I will try and keep the timeline straight if you will stay with me. Before I go, though, I should mention that in 526, a massive earthquake hit Antioch, 
devastating the city's buildings and killing thousands. The earthquake was clearly huge as the nearby town of Apamea was completely destroyed and the aftershocks were said to last for 18 months. This was on the back of a terrible fire the year before and in 528 a second quake hit, killing thousands more. Justin and then Justinian sent generous financial aid and began reconstruction efforts. However, the traumatized citizens of Antioch suggested renaming the place as Theopolis, the city of God, to try and mollify his apparent wrath. I'm afraid the tribulations of the people of Antioch had only just begun. It's Christmas time, of course, and so I'm afraid you're going to have to wait three weeks for the next episode. I promise we'll be back on the regular schedule after that, and you won't want to miss the next few episodes. In the meantime, I have put up a bibliography at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. You can find it in the very top right-hand corner of the page. Not only does it include every book I have read while compiling the podcasts, but I've also given a short recommendation for each one and divided the list up for beginners and more advanced readers. You can also find me on Twitter at the TBCriticOrg. So far I've only used it for my work as a TB critic, hence the name, but from now on I will also tweet when anything Byzantium related happens. Have happy holidays wherever you are, if you have them. And thank you so much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.